Welcome back to the Security Conversations Podcast. My guest this week is Omkar Arasaratnam. He is the new general manager at the Open Source Security Foundation. Omkar, uh, let's start right there. What does the GM at the Open Source Security Foundation do? Hey, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, we've obviously known each other for quite a while. Um, so I joined, in fact, tomorrow makes 60 days. Uh, so some of this has been inferring what the GM's accountable for. Right, uh, but right. generally... I'm accountable for ensuring that we meet our objectives, which are to secure the open source pipeline that a lot of our both corporate sponsors as well as community members use on a daily basis for some very mission critical applications. Uh, as you're aware, open source software these days shows up everywhere from your mobile phone to aircraft to critical infrastructure and everything in between. So our ability to secure the open source supply chain against security threats and bad actors is paramount. You've had a storied career in starting with information security or what has become cybersecurity, financial services over the years, including a run at Google more recently. Why did you choose this job for your next stop? It feels like uh, from an outsider looking in that this is one of those gargantuan tasks where you're just kind of nipping away at the problem and it just never gets solved. I mean, you're, you're the optimist. Why take this gig? You know, I, I would never consider myself to be an optimist, especially because I've been in security for two decades. Um, it's a very hard perspective to keep up. Um, what I would say is, and for a brief history of Omkar, right? I was born at IBM, uh, got into open source there 25 years ago, got into security there 20 years ago, then financial sector, then Google. Um, to address the elephant in the room, I was part of what we refer to as the golden 12K or the 12,000 folks that were laid off from Google in January. Um, so the consideration as to what to do next was kind of imposed upon me versus it being my own election. With that said, yeah. um, many of your viewers and listeners, I'm sure, have heard about the raft of layoffs in the tech community. For me personally, you know, I was angry. I was a bit upset when it first happened. It was a shock to the system. But it also allowed me the opportunity to think about what's important. And the reason that I'm here, Ryan, is impact. So Every other job that I've had from IBM to TD Bank to Credit Suisse, excuse me, to TD Bank to Deutsche Bank to Credit Suisse to JPMC to Google was this wonderful momentum that I was riding from the job that I was doing at the time to the next job. And the kind of shadow that that cast over it is it influenced both what I liked as well as what I didn't like. And for the mm -hmm. first time, I had this grand opportunity where there was no momentum, like there was no compelling reason for anything. And after my wife told me that I couldn't retire, um, I thought about what was important. And what was really important to me was impact. And while it would have been comfortable for me to go back into financial sector or another role in tech, when I thought about the broad horizon, like genuinely, how can we make the world more secure? And I'm, I'm a fellow that would much rather go really wide on a problem and make a little bit of incremental progress forward than necessarily go all the way deep on something quite narrow. Right. This just spoke to me. And it was by total coincidence, there was a recruiter, shout out to Carl Sherman <laughs> within my network, who had come across this opportunity in a discussion with Jim Zemlin, who's my boss at the Linux Foundation. And between my history with open source, I, I was 
doing kernel commits and I was a distro maintainer back in the day and my long history in security, this was just a match made in heaven. And you genuinely feel that way, even though you mention yourself as not an optimist and someone who's been in security for so long. And I asked this question, I come from a curmudgeon mindset, the journalist <laughs> mindset of, hey, we're in 2023. We've been at this for so long. Why are we here? Why are we in what seems or feels like just the very beginnings of trying to figure out the connectivity between open source software, the importance of it, and then having it secure by default? Like, can you take me through of like, why did we and how did we end up here? You know, I've, I'm not really sure how we ended up here, but what I will reflect on is if you look at the earliest days of computer science, we made a lot of assumptions. And, you know, even in security, there's no such thing as absolute security, right? If you ask for somebody who's experienced in the field to make something absolutely secure, they unplug the network, unplug the power. It's unusable, right? It's unusable, exactly. So I think in the earliest days, to kind of reflect on at least my take on the... Uh, last, call it 50 years of computer science. 25, even 20. <laughs> we, um, we made a lot of assumptions. A lot of the programming languages that we currently use, a lot of the data structures, a lot of the algorithms, a lot of the way systems were designed, never considered a ubiquitously connected IPv6 enabled device. So we start there. And we also think about programming languages like C. For everybody that's going to dive into the comments, I, I used to write C. I still write C. I'm not a hater. However, we it provided... memory safety. Exactly. Right. We get into the memory safety problem, right? And not that memory safety is the only problem, but memory safety, input validation, like there are all these kind of things that you as a low-level software engineer have to be thoughtful about ensuring don't end up as problems. So I think the very germination of certain languages or styles of programming that have become very popular cause some of these problems. And it's why we see, and again, to be very clear, I love Rust. I'm learning Rust right now. Shout out to the Rust community. Um, it's not without its flaws as well. Every programming language can only do so much. But I think what we're realizing is through a historical lens, there were certain programming languages that may have made things more difficult. We're gravitating towards languages that make things easier. And that's one small, one small spot. The other thing that has been occurring of recent, and I, I draw a timeline or a start date back to Heartbleed. When Heartbleed came out, it made us realize that this venerable open source supply chain that everybody was using, I mean, open SSL is ubiquitous, even today wasn't being properly curated. And it brought knowledge and attention to the fact that a lot of the people that had historically gravitated towards open source software, whether it be for the freedom that it allowed in terms of freedom of expression, or whether it be the perception that it was less costly than some enterprise software, that that wasn't the whole story. That wasn't your TCO. You had to be thoughtful about what you were putting in. So I think some of these kind of Epic realizations due to massive security issues have also prompted that. And even more recently, things such as Log4j prompting us to be even more thoughtful about, I was speaking with somebody last week, the CIS, formerly known as SANS Top 10, has had asset management as number one for like the last 25 years. Right. 
in a sense, all the hysteria about SBOMs and software inventory is just a different spin on asset inventory. And the fact that we're now realizing, oh boy, we really need to figure that out, is part of our maturation as an industry. I mean, if we look at, say... Maturation? Uh, evolution. Okay. <laughs> Okay, because maturation suggests we're heading in, in, in the right direction. And I, I argue, I argue mm -hmm. that the creation of OpenSSF, the hiring mm -hmm. of a new general manager, the, you know, trying to fund individual developers to go focus on things like Rust or things like Python or, you know, whatever it is you guys are working on and very, mm -hmm. very important work feels again like drips in the ocean, drips in the ocean. Like even your funding, like you get $5 million, right? This is a big announcement for the OpenSSF. I hear start startups getting $30 million to build some small, tiny dashboard. We're, we're attacking a global internet problem. At, uh, and, and with the scale of the problem we're describing, it just feels, I don't know, it feels like we're not maturing. And, and I asked the question, how did we get here to yeah. figure out where we are and like where we go and where we're heading and trying to figure out if we're actually heading towards maturation. Because I look at the headlines every day. Every mm -hmm. company is owned by ransomware. Every company is being popped with zero day. The vulnerabilities are flowing nonstop. It just it just never seems to end. So I you know I go back to the original question of like how do we get here, mm -hmm. and where are we? Is this a tipping point in the open source supply chain world? Do you feel like we're really at this energetic energetic tipping point now, where there's real super, you know, dedicated energy to fixing this? Sorry, I'm just like a little bit of a rant there, but like no, 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 I. It can be quite, if you only look at the headlines, I guarantee your viewers as well would probably agree. It, it can be very off-putting, depressing, or demotivating. Um, here's where we are in terms of OpenSSF. And we do have lofty goals. And I like lofty goals. And we swing for the fences. And look, incremental progress is still incremental progress. It doesn't mean no progress. Mm -hmm. It certainly won't ever be as fast as you or I want it to be. But if we can reflect back, as to where we were yesterday versus today. And look, as a guy that grew up in New York, I call it the subway map, right? And what I've been talking to my team about and what we're organizing around in the midterm is the OpenSSF has done wonderful work over almost the last three years, mm -hmm. but it has been very driven by, I'll say intuition, and what is of interest to a particular member, a groundswell of community, forms around that, and they do amazing work. I want to start evolving us to be able to create the subway map. So if you're at Wall Street, you want to get to 42nd Street, you know, the next stop's going to be Fulton, and you know, the stop after that's going to be Brooklyn Bridge, et cetera, et cetera, for three reasons. One, I want to be able to show our stakeholders, whether it be our corporate sponsors, whether it be public sector groups that are interested, whether it just be interested members that are joining because of their desire to make it more secure, both where we started, where we're going, what we've accomplished so far to help get past this kind of overwhelming fear or challenge that we're not making any forward momentum. The second thing that it'll allow us to do is it will allow us to help focus our community. We are open source. None of this comes top down. We need help from our community. And by drawing this roadmap, or the subway map, it allows them to understand where we need help next. And then the third bit, because we're not omnipresent and we're not all knowing, 
if we want to revector and say, when I get to 14th Street, if I want to switch from the 4.5 to the 2.3, I want to be able to get that feedback from the community, from the public sector, from the private sector to say, hey, we thought we were going down this path. We have very good reasons to switch trains now. So we're doing this through gathering a set of use cases, applying threat models to those use cases, coming up with a series of risk-ranked controls, and using that to be the composition of what our subway maps are going forward. And that's going to be guiding investment and hopefully be able to guide resource distribution into problems down the line rather than it, it being passion projects, right? And Absolutely. Uh, and the other thing that I'll say, Ryan, is my gut feel, look, I want the subway map to be produced. I don't want to guess as to what it's going to be because I've been wrong. But my gut feel is the two areas where we could probably do a bit more focus, need a bit more investment, both from time as well as financial from the community as well as corporate is what I call the two bookends, right? So we've been doing a lot of work in the center on SIGSTOR and SPDX and all these interesting technologies that help us with the development and consumption of software. You asked a question about where do the problems start? As you know, and as we've talked in the past, I do a lot of work with NYU. One of the reasons I do a lot of work with NYU is I think it starts with education. And if you really want to follow the cybersecurity mantra of shifting left far enough, you start with education. You start with telling software engineers, not on a one course basis, how to produce secure software, but as part of their basic training, along with data structures and algorithms, how to write secure software. The other bookend that I think has been slightly neglected, or we could definitely spend more time on, especially within OpenSSF, incident response. There's going to be another log4j. Guarantee it. I don't think that we as an industry have gotten any more disciplined around how we're going to address that. And that actually worries me because you know what it's like operationally, right? When something goes awry, everyone's running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Nobody's doing anything methodically. And we spend a lot of calories in this kind of chaos. If we can reduce this down to run books and tabletop exercises and that muscle memory of just getting it done, one of my friends is a paramedic, and I was teasing him. I said, whenever you guys show up on the scene, nobody's running to the victim. He said, no, we don't run to the victim because then we may trip and injure ourselves. If we think about this as an incident responder, we don't want this chaos, panic, and adrenaline to take over. We want a rigorous runbook that you can execute the next time this happens to ensure that we have an appropriate response rather than trying to figure it out at runtime. Uh, you mentioned again identifying these these projects and using your criticality scores and all that stuff. This Alpha Omega project that came out of OpenSSF had this two part thing that did that right, and a big part of it was I mean Log4j is probably a bad example because I sat at the Black Hat talk many many years ago that's that actually pinpointed that area as a big massive area of problem. We kind of just kind of everyone kind of ignored it. You mentioned the next Log4j for sure will happen. How are you making sure that you're pinpointing the whatever it's named? right? To put the energy and the resources. I, I noticed Rust is getting funded. You mentioned Py, Py, uh, Python here with a new PyPy developer. Like, If the next log4j is just around the corner, like, how do we make sure? I don't know. I don't know how to ask this question, but uh, are, are you guys confident in, 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 the, in the whatever framework you're using that'll help pinpoint where we need to put the resources next? So I'm confident in the framework we're using. I'm also 100% have no clairvoyance whatsoever. 
So the reason I point this out somewhat tongue-in-cheek is we've been very transparent about what our, prioritiz our prioritization methodology is. We believe it's sound. We've got input from the community, corporate sponsors, public sponsors, etc. But a prioritization framework is only as good as the next incident. And the way that we intend on addressing that is as incidents come up, we backtest it. Were we looking at all the right things? Would we have made the same decision given this information now and validate whether the methodology is correct? I am a much bigger fan of being thoughtful and critical of the methodology and ensuring the methodology lines up versus being 100% precise on accuracy because sometimes it's you know, the proverbial black swan event, all nothing that we knew said that this was going to be important or significant. But taking that and improving our methodology to ensure that that's considered for the next time, I think as engineers, is the best thing that we can do. Uh, you, you mentioned Alpha Omega. So the two aspects to Alpha Omega are on the Alpha side, we are providing these grants to Python Foundation, as you mentioned, uh, where we have a software a staff security engineer that just began last week is going to be focused on improving security within PyPy. And on the Omega side, so the Alpha side focuses on this kind of bespoke support for what we have deemed as the most critical open source projects. And that might show up as funding a staff engineer, funding a security assessment from OSTIF, something like this. Right. On the Omega side, this is the rising tide. So this is in general, for all open source projects, the long tail, how are we automating the discovery of what I call classical software vulnerabilities, be it buffer overflows, input validation, you know, XML parsing issues, whatever it is, and then coming up with automated ways to open pull requests in GitHub or what have you, so that the broadest set of open source software can benefit from this while we work in other parts of OpenSSF on ensuring that the frameworks, patterns, education itself helps to bar that in the future. So in that way, Omega stems the bleeding, so to say, while we work more structurally upstream with better methods of doing this. And this were some of the um, recommendations that came out of this Log4j CSRB, the mm -hmm. Cybersecurity Review Board that looked at Log4j and talked a little bit about the education piece and automating a lot of this, uh, uh, the, automating a lot of the, the defenses and shifting left early in the process. Uh, what have we learned from the Log4j crisis that if it occurs in December 2023, uh, uh, in, in, in what, six months? Mm -hmm we'll be in a better place. No one will be lighting their head on fire. Or are we still there where we could be? And you mentioned this incident response, like this is the mission. The mission is to like, let's not have a hair on fire moment. But mm -hmm. has anything changed from then to December 2023 when the next one happens? I think some things have changed. So um, from a public sector perspective, I think especially... In our country, the Biden administration's exec executive orders and things of that nature have certainly empowered a much better coordination, much better accountability on the government side. On the private sector side, what I believe has occurred much better is 
through things like SBOM. And I'm not saying that SBOM is a solve all. I want to get into an SBOM conversation for a second, but yeah, just go ahead. Cause I want to dig into a little sure. bit about what that, what the promise is, what mm -hmm. the reality is and you know, what, what it looks like in 2030. Yeah. Let's look at what software looks like in 2030, but go on with your answer. Sure. So uh, the reason I was bringing up SBOM is I think the work that has been done around SBOM so at least gives us a better handle on which libraries are deployed today. And I think that inventory can be quite useful in being able to construct the defenses, remediation, and correction of any of the issues on this new, you know, hypothetical December 2023 right. new version of... Uh, super hypothetical, just to be Super clear. hypothetical. <laughs> Unless you're planning something you haven't told me, man. Um, the other thing that I think we have is within OpenSSF, and we're not doing this on our own, right? We're partnering with other foundations, Python Foundation, Rust Foundation, OSTIF, um, ISC Squared. There's a lot of nonprofits that are interested in this space. We have a much stronger network now than we had then, which will also help us mobilize. Is this the perfect score? Absolutely not. I think we can do so much more, coming back to a comment I made earlier, about making incident response this durable and scientific discipline rather than this kind of art where everybody springs to action. One of the things that I learned running production software, both at banks as well as IBM and Google, is you want everything written down. You want boring. Even when it comes to incident response, you want boring. You don't want to have the highest paid person in the room shouting orders at you kind of intuitively as to what to do next. Everybody should be following the runbook. Mm -hmm. I would have a lot more confidence in being able to handle that 2023 December Log4j incident if we had that better established and we had better rigor around that. And what does that look like? Can you pause a little bit and uh, linger a little bit there and what did this runbook playbook look like? Sure. So when I was in financial sector, one of the things that our regulators challenged us with is not only do you have incident response plans, but how often are they practiced? What's your evidence that people know what to do? How are you testing that what you've written down is actually what will occur in production? Because everybody knows you have these best, played, best made plans. Yeah. And then what happens when online banking is down? Well, everybody jumps to action and you're shooting from the hip. So All the ransomware victims are finding this out now, right? They, yeah. had, they had their procedures and their playbooks. Nobody tested it. And then they go to do their, run their backups according to their playbook. And it takes 330 years to fully complete the backup. And now we're in a reality check, right? <laughs> so when I was at IBM, there was a, uh, there's a backup program we used to have called Tivoli Storage Manager. And one of the Tivoli Storage Manager principal engineers kind of half jokingly told me one time, everybody cares about backups. Nobody cares about restores. They should care about restores. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I think this kind of practiced art of testing your operational rigor when it comes to, I mean, we're talking about the next log4j, but generally in terms of any security, like you don't want the first time that your security operations center is trying out a book, a run book to be mm -hmm. at the point of incident, right? This should be like, I used to play basketball in high school and you'd run drills with your coach, not because you would have drills in the game, but it became muscle memory as to how to move the ball around the court based on the drill. And I'm suggesting that that's what good looks like when it comes to incident response. And those are things that I'd like to explore further within our work in OpenSSF, be it through writing down exemplar 
run books for this kind of thing, whether it be through facilitating tabletop exercises, as I know uh, the government does and regulators do quite often when it comes to major cyber incidents and things of that nature. But that's how I, that's what I think good looks like. And that's how, that's my wish for how we should improve uh, in order to be able to handle the next 2023 log4j. Are you optimistic? Let's let's get into SBOMs for a second, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Are you optimistic about the promise of what SBOM can contribute to the, the, the stack? Help me understand where you are, because there's, you, as you know, it's a lot of controversy. Are we yeah. adding a bundle of resources onto developers who should be more focused on, you know, removing memory safety issues? Like, uh, like where, where are you in terms of your level of uh, uh, comfort that this is the right approach? So I think, I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. I think it's a, it, it's basic. Like if you, as a software engineer, you have a build system, right? You write code, you commit code, CI, CD, or manual, whatever it is, something takes the code that you've written and compiles it and spits out a binary and you run the binary in production. If this is an arduous task, right? If you need to go through a lot of effort in order to understand what software went into the software you're writing. That's, that's a concern to me. That's a, right. as a software engineer, as a security guy, that's a big concern to me. So my initial reaction is, God, I hope it's not that much of an effort because this should be something you as an engineer understand. Now there's significant trepidation as to what the right format is, right? Like, is it SPDX? Is it Cyclone DX? Is it this? Is it that? I will allow the community to figure that out as to what's easiest and what's best for them. But the right, idea the of having rise an to inventory, the top eventually you'll get with the formats and so on, you believe will, will sort themselves out, right? Right. But I think the criticality of having the S-bomb to me is you understand the composition of what you're running. It is really that basic, like with a very similar, to use an infrastructure analog, if you are running a Windows server in production or you are running a Linux server in production, on Linux, you know the kernel version, you know the version of glibc, you know the version of systemd. On Windows, you understand what version of Windows, what patch level, all of that stuff. We take all of this for granted. SBOMS, to me, is just extending that into the composition of software that you have. On its own, it doesn't inherently add any additional security property whatsoever. It is simply an inventory. But the inventory then allows you to reason over when 2023 December log4j hits, man, which productions, which production servers have this that are internet facing? Mm -hmm. Okay, which ones are behind the firewall? What tools do I have uh, at my disposal that whatever the vulnerability may be will allow me to block access, block a port, use a web or use a web application firewall in order to filter particular traffic, whatever it is, so that I can update at my leisure or at least at a pace that's not mission critical. And then similarly, if I am a producer of software rather than strictly a consumer, it allows me to understand within my code base where the issues occur, and it allows me to reason over whether it's actually vulnerable, right? So back to log4j. If you use log4j in order to log stuff in your application, in your Java app, it didn't necessarily mean you were vulnerable, right? It truly depended on how you use that. Oh, it was and right. yeah, from a traceability perspective, 
it would allow you as the software engineer to go back and reason over which code paths hit it, whether you should be concerned, or perhaps as part of your input validation, you were doing something to clean that up before it could ever be an exploited code path. But to come back to the question, SBOMs are important. SBOMs are not important because they inherently add any security property, but it helps you to understand the inventory and scope of the challenge that you have so you can more effectively remediate it. That's why I believe SBOMs are important. And another small part of it is understanding licensing and open source licensing restrictions, requirements to deal with legal issues. Like SBOM bring a lot of additional value even beyond uh, uh, the security things. Is there a lack of education and expectation? Like why are, why are so many smart people you know, a little dismissive of SBOM and all this conversation around SBOMs? Is, are we missing? Are, are they, what are they missing? So I think, I think SBOMs are being used. There's, there's, a, there's a problem and a benefit with SBOM. The problem is, and the benefit is, it's quite easy to understand what an SBOM is, right? And as I emphatically stated just a few minutes ago, it in itself doesn't add a security property. I think the problem with the sound bites that we're getting about SBOM is they are trying to conflate SBOM as a solution, as a security solution, while it's only the precondition to building a security solution. Correct. So I think a lot of my peers that I've spoken to, their frustration isn't whether an SBOM has value, but their frustration is, okay, man, now that you have the SBOM, what are you going to do with it? Because I'll tell you something, if you're the average mid-sized company in America who barely has their arms around how many laptops or EC2 instances you have, you understanding that you have Zlib version 1234 running in production, it's not going to help you. Like this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? (laughs) First, tend to the basic stuff and then start worrying about this. So I think the other argument that I've heard is most people aren't, most organizations aren't at the level of maturity yet where reasoning over an SBOM is something that's critical path to them being more mature. They're still struggling with some rather basic stuff. I've heard that argument as well. You mentioned the <coughs> Biden, and, uh, Biden administration uh, uh, executive order on securing America's supply chains. I think that was the official name of it. Uh, SBOM, SBOM, uh, uh, SBOMs are becoming mandatory in, in, in the federal world. Do you expect right. this to trickle down? And, and how soon can we expect to see like patch management tools and some of the other, whatever the tools are, start to ingest and push out? Like, when are we- I mean, I, I've already seen it. Um, so uh, there's there's a number of startups, and my I, I don't intend to endorse anyone in particular, but there's a number of startups that are already reasoning over the production consumption and uh, leveraging SBOMs in order to help things like uh, XDR kind of how do I triage based on what my SBOM says. So I think that the the requirement from the Biden administration that SBOMs be produced is going to trickle down to obviously anybody that wants to service the federal government. And subsequently, if you're a federal government contractor that also has commercial interests outside of the government, you're not going to constrain, you know, just for your federal products, it's, it's going to start to expand. And the market pressure of the federal or of the companies that produce solutions for federal government outside of the federal space will then beckon their competitors to also rise to the occasion. I think we're going to see other regulation around the world enforce very similar uh, kind of requirements. Mm -hmm. 
And my hope is that people will recognize this as not just another regulatory burden, but really an opportunity to think about different inputs that could be critical to them attuning their incident response process, as we discussed earlier. I know for um, some folks, there's this kind of automatic convergence between SBOM and CVE. I would like to keep it separate. I think trying to conflate the two tries to dull things a little too much. I think SBOMs have utility on their own. Being able to correlate a CVE to a particular version of a library based on the SBOM is fine, but from a data architecture perspective, keeping them separate and distinct, I think, is useful. And we're in the state now where we're just we're working through all of this now, right? That's right. I think we're working through all of this um, within the Linux Foundation, of course. We produce SPDX, which, as you mentioned earlier, supports not only reasoning over license formats and you know which version of GPL are you using, but also about the inventory of your software and other artifacts. I believe there's going to be a pen, there's a pending release to include things like AI and ML hardware, things of this nature. We're running out of time. I want to ask one last question. I know you're very connected to the startup ecosystem where innovation is really happening. If you believe, like I partially do, that the VCs, you know, drive a lot of the innovation through investing in the right places. You and if you do believe that open source security and, and, and supply chain issues are top, top notch, probably we'd expect to see a lot of funding of startups in that space. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And are you are you getting a sense that the trend around investments are going in the right direction? Uh, I I certainly hope so. I think, I mean, I, as an amateur armchair investor that's had limited amount of success in my own personal <laughs> investments, um, I think the the economic situation just you know say summer of twenty twenty to maybe uh, first quarter of last year. There was a lot of cash in the market. Money was cheap proverbially. And as a result of that, what we saw was a lot of investment in a lot of different things and maybe not as much due diligence. I think the compression that we've seen in the last, generously call it 18 months to a year, has kind of squeezed a lot of the, I'll say, less well-thought-out approaches to this out of the market. Uh, Just sheer economics, right? Right, right, right. I haven't seen a great degree, and again, I'm comparing, say, summer of 2020 compared to summer now. I haven't seen the same velocity of investment, but what I have seen is a lot of doubling down in the security space on people that are focused on improving supply chain, not necessarily through bolstering open source projects, but through providing you know, more traceable ways of tracking software dependencies, more solid ways of uh, kind of taking all the unnecessary stuff out of your container, right? right? As with any other software, the more you shrink your code base, the less vulnerabilities there are because there's less code. So I've seen a lot of uh, folks in this space. I haven't yet come across something that's truly been novel where I've been like, oh, well, that's an interesting approach. Uh, but there does seem to be, I'll, I'll add one more thing. The one thing I have seen around open source contributions is there's certainly a cohort of products that consider the reputation of the person that's committing code. So they attempt to do some analytics as to the health of the project, the health of the person committing code, and from there try to infer 
whether a random unattributed pull request yeah. is of the same caliber as Linus Torvalds accepting something into the kernel, yeah. um, which again, depending on what kind of business you're in, allows you to reason over if that's a commit that you should be accepting. Umkar, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. Please come back anytime you have something uh, uh, you want to say from the Open Source Security Foundation. Appreciate the time.